0: Well, good evening. We'll go ahead and get started. Appreciate seeing you guys here. And by the way, before I forget to tell you this, next Wednesday night, we won't have class. In fact, we won't have any dinner, no classes. It's fall break for the schools. And I think we've just learned the hard way that just might as well let it go, you know, just not, (laughs) Try to do. You can't predict how much to cook for dinner or anything. So next week we'll have one week off, and then all the classes, everything just kicks back off the next week. All right. So uh, next time on the 15th we won't have class, but then we will after that. These are where you can text questions in, and uh, as soon as my trusty helper Laura gets here, she will take those questions and sort them out. But at the moment she's AWOL and. in fact, I kind of need to write up a disciplinary report. <laughs> you know, don't know. So, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Not happening, right? We are talking about the book of James, and we're taking a little different approach. Not a different approach because it says anything different, but I'd like to highlight one of the aspects of the book of James. It's very practical. Explanation of the good news of Jesus Christ. I mean, it's very practical wisdom, but it's very countercultural, counterintuitive in some ways. And the thesis of what we've been talking about is simply this that when our beliefs do not line up with reality, we have very painful collisions in life. And those collisions take the form of stress, anxiety, Uh, sometimes more serious than that, but the idea that when our belief systems do not match reality, and what James, what the entire Bible is telling us, but specifically in our study of James, is this is how God designed reality. So, here's my picture for you tonight of when beliefs do not coincide with reality. No matter how much you believe that that semi will fit underneath it, if that's not reality, it isn't going to happen. All right, and so you kind of see that in the, in the real world in a lot of ways. In the book of James, in our last lesson, we saw a collision with the way we think about things. If you remember, James starts out, I mean, immediately. He basically says, hi, this is James. Now, I'd like to tell you, consider it entirely joy. Consider it pure joy when you encounter various trials, difficulties, circumstances, stresses, anxieties in life. Because you know that the refining of your faith, the testing of your faith, but we talked about, looked at some passages in 1 Peter and Romans, and the idea here is that refining of your faith produces perseverance or endurance. And when endurance has its complete effect, you'll become perfect and complete. So he immediately jumps in and says something that's really uncomfortable. We come face-to-face with a really uncomfortable truth. And that's this. Our experience of trials, our experience of stress or difficulties is at odds with what the Bible says is reality. And you know what? That's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to come up against the Bible and go, wow, I don't think about trials that way at all. It's not a bad thing because it's one of the ways that the word of God transforms us. There are people who believe that you don't actually ever learn anything unless there's some kind of cognitive dissonance. In other words, unless there's a contrast, unless there's a, some little contradiction, we never really change the way we think. And so coming face to face with something, oh wait a minute, I don't think of difficulties as joyful. That's a good thing for us. You've probably heard the saying that ignorance is bliss. I've actually found that ignorance is usually pretty painful. You know, ignorance is not normally bliss. Ignorance usually comes with a price. And so coming face to face with this is a good thing. We tend to experience trials, difficult circumstances, as stress or anxiety or discontent. And we can also experience it in terms of grief and physical ways, but the more, most common way, and the way you may not think about this much, but the most common way we encounter Difficulties in life as we react with stress or anxiety or discontent, a lack of joy, lack of harmony, something like that. But James says that it's, we should reprogram the way we think about that and think of it as joyful. And so what he's trying to do, what the Word is trying to do, is to bring our beliefs into conformity with reality, trying to bring our beliefs in conformity with reality. We're gonna be very practical in this class, but I'm not gonna say, you just need to change the way you're behaving. Because that does not work long term. It just doesn't work for us. I mean, that's why you keep, if it worked, there would have only ever been one self-help book published. Instead, it's a multi-billion dollar industry year after year. And the reason is is it does not behavior modification, I mean it can work to some extent, but fundamentally, that's not the approach, certainly not the approach the Bible takes. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. The word brings our beliefs about the world into alignment with reality, and then we stop colliding with reality. That's why the Bible can say You can be joyful. You can be content in the midst of trials because something meaningful is happening. We talked about seeing through the difficulties to the benefits on the other side. And that's the way the Scripture wants us to look at it. That starts with reprogramming our brain. It doesn't start with faking happiness when bad things happen, okay? My suggestion, and this isn't a biblical suggestion, this was your assignment this week, was to, anytime you feel stressed or anxious or discontent, you know, the stresses of life, I wanted you to do this little exercise. And I won't ask you how many of you did it, but I'll just tell you this. It isn't going to change until you begin to get your thinking and doing aligned. Doing by itself won't work. Thinking by itself won't work. You get the thinking and doing aligned. And here was my prescription for you. is First of all, when you feel stressed or anxious, talk to God. Tell him how you feel, not because he doesn't know, mainly because we don't always know. If you will talk to God in those circumstances, we'll realize that I'm not angry, I'm just afraid. I'm not mad about something that's happening. I'm simply feeling anxious that it won't turn out the way I want it to turn out. In other words, let's have that honest conversation with God. That's just called good prayer. That's just a conversation with God. The second thing is then ask him to do what's best for you. This is a key part because there's, not, there's nothing wrong with asking God for what you want. We're going to talk about that. James has a lot to say about that. But there's nothing inherently wrong with that. It just isn't good for us when you're trying to reprogram your mind and your actions. Because the key here is to let go of the need for things to turn out the way you want to be content. Here's the truth. As long as things have to turn out the way you want for you to be content, you will not be content. That is the truth of life. That is not what the culture will tell you. It says you can manipulate your environment enough to be content if you'll buy this product, if you will do this, if you will attend this, if you will join that. And that's a lie. Look at the statistics in America and you realize, well, that's apparently, that's just evidently Not true. What God says is true is simply this God knows what's best for you, and if you will let go of things needing to turn out the way you think they need to turn out, then you can be content. So ask God to do what's best for you. If He is trustworthy, that's an easy thing to do. Then finally, give thanks. In that little conversation, just have this conversation every time you feel stressed. If you will do it, I'm not kidding you. Anybody do that all week and realize, wow, I had a lot better week? You start to align your thinking and your doing. So tell God how you feel, ask him to do what's best for you, and then give thanks and then move on. Giving thanks is key here because we need that reminder that God is just as, I mean, if you stop and think about this, it's we don't think about this in a very good way. God is just as good when things don't go your way as he is when things do go your way. You understand that? I mean, you believe that cognitively, we just don't put that into practice very often. Our prayers don't really reflect that. When's the last time you thanked God when something didn't work out your way? You can probably look back in your past and now thank God, right, for when things didn't work out your way. You're like, thank you, Lord, for not doing what I wanted. You had a much better plan. I mean, that's very common. But in the moment, when's the last time you said, boy, I'm so glad that didn't work out the way I wanted? Not often, is it? But you know that God is just as good when things don't work out your way as he is when they do. And that's why I want you to end this little conversation with, by the way, I don't know about this situation, but I sure do appreciate this, or I am grateful for that. When we we thank God for our blessings and get upset or fail to thank him in other circumstances, our faith becomes really one-dimensional. We can easily slip into God as my fairy godmother. And I will thank you every time you give me a piece of candy. And at best, I just won't say anything when I have to eat my vegetables. It's a very one-dimensional kind of faith. Give thanks at the end of this conversation. All right? Everybody, I want you to keep doing that. And if you haven't, I want you to start doing that. It's easy. It takes you 30 seconds to do this. But you're going to begin to reprogram your reaction to events that you don't like you're gonna think differently, you're gonna end up behaving differently, you're really gonna smooth out your life. You're gonna take weeks that go like this and they're going to start to smooth out. And you will begin to be able to say, like the Apostle Paul, I have learned to be content in any circumstance. It really will work. So that was our, our prescription in our last lesson. Well, you've heard the old saying, if you keep doing what you've always done, you'll keep getting what you've always gotten. That seems self-evidently true, doesn't it? If you keep doing what you've always done, you'll keep getting what you always get. And I'm gonna change that just a little. If you keep thinking in those unrealistic ways, you can try to behave any way you want, you will continue to beat your head against the wall. In other words, if we keep thinking the way we used to think, we'll probably keep getting the same results that we did before. If we keep thinking in ways that don't agree with reality, we will keep colliding with reality. And the collision takes the form of stress. Everybody, I mean, it's a multi billion dollar business to tell you how to get rid of stress and anxiety and discontent and how to be happy and how to be joyful. And you can decide to do this and you can do that. Everybody wants to tell you how to do that. But if you keep thinking the way you've always thought, you're going to end up getting what you've always gotten. In the Word of God, James is challenging us to transform our view of reality. And that's what he did with trials. And in this lesson, I want to move on and I want to talk about the nature of faith because we have a very skewed view if we aren't careful of what faith is. And James is going to say some really startling things about faith. Well, before we get to chapter 2, I want to take an excursion, just a little side trip to a pretty little passage in chapter 1. It ties in a little bit, but I want to make a point, a very practical point. James says, don't merely listen to the word Don't be hearers of the word only and not doers. Don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. You're kidding yourself. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but doesn't do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror, and after he does, he goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. I mean, it's a great little image, beautiful image he gives us here. But the man who stares intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this not forgetting what he's heard, but doing it, he'll be blessed in what he does. He's fortunate. He's happy in what he does. This idea of hearers and doers is something Jesus talked about uh, twice in the Sermon on the Mount. One of which you probably remember at the end of chapter seven. He kind of ends it up by saying this. He ends the Sermon on the Mount at the end of chapter seven by saying, "The man who hears what I have told you and does it is like the wise man who built his house on the rock. And the man." who hears what I've told you but doesn't do it, is like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. Remember that story, and then the rains come? Jesus is making this point. It's not enough just to hear it, just to know it. We also have to do it. And here's the point I want to make, and then we'll get on to faith, because I really want to spend some time talking to you about what faith is really like, because that's going to change your week also, uh, is this. As Christians, we read a lot of things, And I don't want you to think that I'm down on Christian publishing. I'm really not. But when we read the Bible, it's like looking into the mirror that actually tells you what you look like. Reading the Word of God is what really is going to transform us. The living and active Word of God transforms us. Reading about the Bible while it can be a good thing, is like looking in one of those mirrors at the circus or one of those trick mirrors. You know, you look at the mirror and it makes you like real thin. I have one of those and I like that. I don't see a problem with that. Or you look in one of the mirrors and it just makes you, you know, really wide. I mean, they're, they're distorted a little, aren't they? All the things we read about the Bible, as good as they are, as helpful as they are, and I'm not saying you shouldn't do it, they are all distortions in some way of the word. They may be helpful, they may make you feel better, they may make things clearer to you, and that's good, whether it's a devotional or it's an inspirational book or whatever it may be, but they are all in some ways distortions. So here's my point, is read those books if, if you want to, and I think they can be very helpful, but not at the expense of reading the Bible. Who would really get up in the morning and look into the mirror, well, the one that made you thin, maybe we would, but you know what I'm saying? Looking into a mirror that kind of distorted what you look like. Why would you do that every day when you have a mirror that will show you exactly what you look like? So I'm not knocking devotionals. I'm not knocking that. I'm just telling you, I see more and more Christians read that. They read about the Bible. Don't read the Bible. That's like looking into a distorted mirror every day to see what I look like. It's going to be hard to get that makeup on right, you know. So. My point there is, is being hearers and doers of the word, it's really difficult of do, to do it right if you don't hear it clearly. And the Bible is the clear, clear exposition of the word of God. Okay, I'll get off my soapbox about that, but I'm kind of passionate about it because I see a trend that isn't healthy. The trend of, it's not that we read books about the Bible, there are many good ones, but reading that instead of the Bible is making us distorted. It's distorting Christianity, and we'll talk about that. In just a second, let's go to chapter 2 and let's talk about this core idea of faith and works. But I'm going to reframe the discussion a little But We use the word faith and deeds or faith and works. And this is going to be another one of those moments where James hits us in the face with a reality that's counterintuitive to what we typically think. Here's what he says. He said, what good is it? And by the way, that was a saying in those days. Like, what's the profit? What's the point? You know, uh, here's an example today would be, I don't know if you guys ever say this, it is what it is. That's become one of my favorite sayings, and I don't know if that's a good thing or not. But, you know, we have these little catch phrases that encompass some popular wisdom. That, this was one of those phrases in that day. You know, what's the point? What good is it? You know, it's questioning an activity. So, so what's the point? If a man claims to have faith, but doesn't have any deeds, doesn't have any works, can that... Kind of faith save him? And the answer is no. This is phrased in such a way you could just as easily have translated it. That kind of faith can't save you, can it? No, it cannot. That's a startling claim. Because you know what James is saying? Apparently, just as there is a way of being a Christian that leads to stressful and anxious lives, there is a way For Christians who approach difficulties that lead to very stressful and anxious lives, there's also a way to have faith and not be saved. You think that's startling? Very apparent thing for him to say. I mean, he just comes right out and he says, listen, this kind of faith cannot save you. And you typically hear that kind of explained away a little bit like, well, that's not really faith. There's some truth to that. There's a big difference. The scope of that word in the New Testament is the semantic range. The breadth of that word is big. Our word belief, faith, and trust. There's a lot of mileage between belief and trust for us are all encompassed in this one Greek word. And and you'll see it translated all the different ways. So I do understand that James is talking about faith in a certain way. But there's this really interesting idea that you can have faith and not be saved. That's not an unusual idea. Let me show you a couple of things Jesus said. Because at first, that seems to be like, wow, I'm not sure what I think about that. But let me show you a couple of things Jesus said. Again, we'll just stick with the Sermon on the Mount. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. In other words, who, who, well, these are people that believe in Jesus. This is not secular people that says, hey, Jesus, I don't think you're the son of God. don't believe in you at all. That's not what he's talking about. He says, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father. He says, many will say to me on that day, he's talking about judgment day, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we uh, drive out demons in your name? Didn't we perform many miracles? He's exaggerating. He's making the really obvious things, right? Didn't we do all this stuff in your name, and I will tell them plainly, I never knew you, away from me, you evildoers. It's hard to get around understanding that any other way than what James pretty bluntly says is, you can believe in Jesus and not be saved. That's just all there is to it. Jesus said the same thing, by the way. In fact, he predicts this uh, in another passage in chapter 7. He says, you need to strive to enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through that. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few are able to find it. We don't talk about this very much, but we need to talk about this. This is exactly the same thing that James is saying: it's that believing in Jesus is not the same thing as being saved. You can believe, you can have a faith that doesn't save you. In fact, Jesus is going to say this, many believe, but few trust. If you want to interpret this in a way we can start to get our head around it, you could say it this way, many believe, but few trust. If you do surveys in America, still well up into the over 80% of Americans claim to believe in God, and a very high percentage claim to be Christians When you look at the United States, just by any objective statistical measurement, you would find that difficult to believe that that is actually the case. That's not really terribly surprising because it's predicted. It is entirely possible to believe in Jesus and not be saved, not actually be a follower of Jesus. That's not that uncommon. A thing to have happen and that's what James is going to point out because this kind of believing this kind of faith leads to some things that uh, that are going to explain this whole idea ties into what he said about dealing with trials and having a joyful life in other words we have a lot of Christians there are a lot of us and at times in our lives maybe it's a time for you now where you said you know what I believe in Jesus Christ but my life doesn't look anything and I'm not talking about your behavior I'm talking about your contentment You know, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's like, you know, I just, I'm not seeing that. How's that happen? James doesn't shy away if he says, yeah, that happens. He said, I'll tell you exactly why that happens. You can have faith and not be saved. You can believe in Jesus and not have that. And Jesus says the same thing. In fact, James is going to give us an illustration. He says, now, let me just point this out. He said, suppose you see a brother or sister who doesn't have clothes or daily food, and you say to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed. In other words, my intentions are good. I have the attitude of, gee, I would like for you to have health care, I'd like for you to have good clothes, I'd like you to have food, I'd like you to be warm, I'd like whatever that is, but don't do anything about it. And then he repeats that phrase, what's the point? What, what is the point of that? In other words, we don't lack the desire, we don't lack the belief that it would be good, But his point is, what happens out of that? He said, that's kind of like this idea of faith. And he's gonna call that kind of faith, with a really strong statement at the end of this passage, he said, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Gonna use a different word a couple verses later, in verse 20, he's gonna call that kind of faith useless. So that kind of faith without action is dead or useless. Now, what you're probably saying is, Terry, this lesson going to end easy because I see the resolution to this. We need to believe and we need to do good deeds. That is not my point at all. In fact, I'm going to argue that is a very flawed way of looking at it. In fact, and I know that you hear that kind of taught sometimes and with good intentions, but that doesn't resonate with me. Yes, Terry, I see what he's saying. Not only do you have to have faith, you also have to have works. No. Let's talk about that for a second because this is a really common thing. Uh, A friend of mine and uh, one of the really great teachers here, uh, Dr. Cliff Sanders, talks about it in this way. He likes to talk about the dialectic. And by that, what he means is, is the tension between grace and effort. And I want to talk about this a second because this is what happens when we think about what James is saying is, oh, I not only need to believe, I need to do. I not only need to have faith, I also need to have works. That actually leads down a trail that will collide with a brick wall. Let me show you what I mean by that. There's this tension between grace and effort in our lives. On the one hand, we understand that we are saved by grace, Ephesians 2:8, through faith but it's grace, grace, grace. And that's generally characterized by this kind of, of thinking. Jesus died on the cross for me. I believe that. So every sin I've ever done, every sin I'm ever going to do has all been paid for by Jesus Christ. I'm going to heaven no matter what. I believe in him. My ticket is punched. I'm good. A lot of preaching, a lot of teaching around grace. Not that that's a bad thing, but it's a bad thing to have tension between grace and effort. If you think about grace and without the idea of effort is like thinking about the belief part without the doing part. And so we basically are saved because we believe in Jesus Christ. We're saved entirely by his grace. But you know what? The Bible also talks a lot about what we do. So I'll tell you what, out of gratitude to Jesus for what he has done for you, you should behave better. That is this grace-oriented message that we get. How's that work for you? That does not work well for anyone because you take the power of the gospel and what we're effectively saying is, Jesus did everything you need and so I want to make you feel so thankful, so grateful that, you know, I ought to act better. So that's what I'm going to do you understand that? That's really the way, that's the road we get into sometimes. We're saved by the grace, but we got to do something because there's all those other passages in the Bible. And that kind of a distorted view leads us to lives that don't look any different than anybody else's. We just try to work real hard, and we have a lot of guilt, right? He did that for me, and I can't even do this for him. You know, that's the kind of thing where I'm like, how many times did you guys come to church last month? Are you kidding me? Jesus Christ died on a cross for you, and you can't get up on Sunday morning and come to church? Now, I realize you don't actually hear it spoken that way, but that's kind of the message sometimes, isn't it? you got to do a little better than that out of sheer gratitude. That's not the gospel. Flip side, effort. Effort says, on the effort side is, yes, God is a God of grace, But you know what i can read all these passages in the bible and you can't just act like everybody else look at the culture christians look just like everybody else you take passages like salt and light what did jesus say about the salt said you're the salt of the earth but if it doesn't taste salty anymore what do you do with it you throw it out like oh i better taste salty i better put some effort into this in other words i need to change the way i behave that turns into self-help christianity That turns into, I need to try harder. And that whole try harder thing is like, you know, the little mouse on the wheel. It doesn't make any difference how fast you run. And I don't know why they keep doing that. It's like, do you not realize you didn't actually go anywhere? But those hamsters just keep moving, man. They're in great shape, but they're not getting anywhere, right? And that's kind of the effort piece. That's the try harder, but you never measure up because we never quite get there. So this idea of grace and effort is a modern dualism. It is a modern way of thinking that there's grace and there's effort and we need both of these and their intention, but we need them to live together. You ever remember growing up, those of you that had siblings, you ever go through a phase where no matter what happened, you could not get along and ever go on a car trip. There were four kids in my family and uh, back in that day, my dad was stationed in Wyoming, various places, but I remember Wyoming because these were the trips that truly were tours through hell. He was in Wyoming. We had to go to Kentucky to see family. In those days, that was all about a three-day trip. I mean, we spent the night, but it was about a three-day trip, and I realize now I could drive that in more than three days, but I could not drive that in, in, uh, in less than three days, but I could not drive that in less than three days with four bickering kids in the back seat. And now I realize why we stopped so much. It was just to preserve my parents' sanity. But I remember having the game, you know, of don't touch me. Mom, she's touching me. Dad, he's on my side of the thing. So it drive you nuts, doesn't it? Well, that's kind of like grace and effort. Trying to put those two together, trying to take your faith and your works and make sure we get both, they're intention. They're inevitably intention. And trying to get them together is just like trying to corral your kids on a long car trip. It's just going to be bickering the whole way. And you get to the end and everybody goes, I'm so glad that's over. Nobody enjoyed the trip. Where's the joy? Where's the contentment? Where's the considerate pure joy when you go on long car trips with your family? I mean, you don't see it. This whole grace and effort tension does not lend itself to that. In fact, grace and effort have twin children. And their children's names are, number one, guilt. This idea of, I got faith, but I also have to have works. So I got works, but is that, my, my faith's really good? This grace and effort thing gives birth to two kids, and the first one is guilt, because you're never going to measure up. You're never going to act good enough to be worthy of Jesus Christ dying on that cross for you. And every time you hear it, you're going to feel worse. Every time you take communion and you have to remember the cross, you also then remember, yeah, and you know what? I'm not doing anywhere near what I should do in that. Guilt. And the other child's name is called rationalizing. And if you're really on the grace side of this, Here's how you slip out of this. We rationalize things. That, the idea of I'm saved by grace, but I don't act very good, all I need is somebody that acts worse. <laughs> we tend to compartmentalize our lives, a very Western, very American way of thinking. And so we take this tension, and how do we deal with it? Well, we usually bounce back and forth between being guilty because... We're not earning this grace or rationalizing that we don't have to earn this grace and so my behavior is okay. I'm getting better. I'm doing more. I'm going to do better next year. Does that make sense? If you think about resolving this whole faith and works thing as, okay, I've got to have faith and I've got to have works, you're back into this grace and effort tension and that tension never gets resolved very well. I call it, this is Terry's word for it, believe and behave Christianity. Believe and behave Christianity. And that is, the formula for Christianity is I need to believe in Jesus and I need to behave. It, it permeates everything. I mean, if you stop and think about it, a lot of youth ministries, for example, are. Run, I mean, a lot of things in Christianity. I'm talking now about James confronting Christians uh, with this whole idea of faith and works. And what he's confronting is a lot of youth ministries are this. If you can get my kid through high school by, I want them to believe in Jesus so they can go to heaven, that's number one. So I need them to pray a prayer, raise their hand, I need to do something. And if you can get them through without drinking, having sex, or taking drugs, we're good. Believe and behave. Now, I'm saying this really bluntly and maybe a little offensively, but you start to boil down a lot of what you hear, and that's what you hear. That's called, I call it believe and behave Christianity. And that leads to tension. That leads to difficulties in a lot of ways. And James, this is my contention, James says that won't save you. You believe that? That's what James is saying. Not only is he saying faith without works is dead, I'm going to tell you that you take faith, you take works, and you just start trying to do them both, guess what? Welcome to the law of Moses, by the way. Welcome to the checklist, welcome to the, did I do good enough today? Or, that's the guilt side, or welcome to rationalizing your way out of it, explaining yourself away, cutting myself some slack, right? Neither one of those ways lead to the life that you see in the scriptures because you have this inherent tension. That's the dilemma that James is confronting us with. He's not just saying, I need you, to have both faith and works, he's actually saying that whole dualistic way of doing Christianity is weak and ineffective and it will not save you. And you know what? Your and my experience tells us that. That's why a lot of people in America will say, I'm a Christian. Not many people in America, and I'm not throwing stones, I'm just saying, just look at the data, will say to you, yes, I'm living a life because of Jesus Christ, I'm content in all my circumstances. I'm not talking about perfection here. I'm talking about this would characterize my life. You don't get many of those answers, but you get an awful lot of Christians. Why? We pursue this kind of Christianity, the believe and behave, that I've got to have faith and I've got to have work, so what else is going on the checklist? Make sense? Any questions about that? because I want I want to turn this corner, and I want to talk about what is James saying, but before we do, I really want us to understand what James is not saying.
1: Okay, I have a couple of questions about your recap of last week. Okay. So I'll start with those. Um, the A in tag, ask God to do what's best for me. Aren't we supposed to do everything for God's glory and not what's best for us? Yes,
0: that's a good point. The purpose... Yeah, and, well, we, could talk, we should talk about that sometime because this is really interesting. But the idea is, should we do everything for God's glory and not about us? Yeah, that's true. That's too philosophical at the moment. I mean, I completely agree with that. I think it's a great question. But what I want to do is take the mindset, right? We're going to take a mindset of how can I be content in every circumstance? How can I consider it joy? How can I look through this? And I want to begin to reinforce that thinking through what I do. So what I'm telling you is this isn't the end-all, be-all. I'm not even telling you it's, it's, there's anything wrong with asking for God to do what you want him to do. He's okay. Your father loves you. But it's good practice for us to say, I tell you what, in this circumstance, why don't you just do what you think is best? Do what you think is best. What God thinks is best ultimately is what glorifies God, but also Romans 8.28 says, you know what, that's good for you. In other words, he loves you, and in all things, he will work for what's really good for you. So yes, I agree with that, but if I said to you, listen, I want you to live this week and every time you have an adversity, just say, God, I just want you to be glorified. That's not a bad thing, but let's do this one step at a time. How about we start by saying, God, however this thing works out, I trust you to work it out. You do what I need. So it's a step, but I don't disagree with that question. That's a good point.
1: Okay, what about circumstances where we know it's not best for us, like divorce?
0: What about circumstances where we know that it is not best for us? Yeah, I'm going to take a little different twist on this, so try, try not to misunderstand what I'm trying to say. I'll try to articulate this very well. There are circumstances that are outside your control, period. That is a fact. You cannot control it. I must want to let that sink in. There are circumstances that are outside your control. Well, God doesn't desire them in a big sense. God doesn't like divorce, God doesn't like injustice, God doesn't like a lot of things. God doesn't like a fallen world and he doesn't like the sin in humanity and what sin has done to humanity, okay? Having said that, there are things that are going to happen. They do, so they are going to happen and we do not have control over that. So my point to you is how then can you look through trials to good on the other side? We have to believe, and by the way, this is very believable. I mean, this is not a hard stretch, that our God, anybody can make good stuff work out for you. I mean, that doesn't take a very powerful God to make good stuff work out for you. I would argue it doesn't even take a very powerful God, if you're really a God, to manipulate circumstances to work out well for you. It takes a really impressive God to take the bad things and make them work out in the end for good for you. Does that make sense? That's how we should view that. That's why you can say, I know you don't like this situation any more than I do. This isn't God's original intent for this to happen or that to happen. For the apostle Paul, do you think it was God was happy and thought it's a really good thing for you to go and get stoned in this village and for people to treat each other the way they're treating you? That's not desirable, but it's reality. It's reality in a fallen world. And God said, i tell you what, Paul, you trust me. I'll make even that work out for good. And that's what I mean by that. So I I really appreciate that question is it doesn't make any difference what the circumstance is. The point is ask God to work that out for good because your God is big enough to work even the wrong things, the bad things, the things he doesn't like about the world. He's big enough to make those work out for good. So whatever it is, if it's outside, if it's inside your control, control it. Here's the problem with reality. Not much is, and we think a bunch of it is. When you realize, when you wise up and realize, you hit the wall enough times and realize, I'm not actually in control of very much of this, turn it over to God. So that's a great question. It does not matter what the circumstance is.
1: Okay, in verse 14, what does James mean by the word saved?
0: Uh, the word saved, there's no fancy Greek stuff here. It's the typical word for saved or rescued. It's, it's just the same old word that's used. It's translated saved everywhere. Now, you, can, you could try to see a lot of people want to kind of explain this way. I don't want to explain it away. I just want it to hit us right in the face. I want him to say pretty much what he says. That kind of faith will not save you. Just like what Jesus said, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. You can slice that, you can dice it, you can do whatever you want with it, but it pretty much says what it says. In this case, there's no way around that. You could argue, well, he doesn't mean saved isn't going to heaven, but then you'll have to explain to me what does he mean and why would you think that? Because then, anywhere else it's translated that way could mean not going to heaven. In other words, I would take it the same way. You will not be rescued from this age. You will not prevail in the day of judgment. You will not go to heaven, whatever. In other words, you're saying this kind of faith won't save you. It will not rescue you. You can split it. Now, some people split faith into, well, there's saving faith, and there's enduring faith, and there's this faith and that faith. You're not going to find that anywhere in the Bible. It's just one word for faith. And I'm just going to let it say what it wants to say. So my take, and I appreciate that question, my take is simply what it seems to be saying is, is that you can believe, have faith, and not be saved in whatever measure you want to understand the word saved. But just understand it the same throughout the scriptures I think would be consistent. So I understand it to, to be a serious thing, not something that I can weaken a little bit. I think he's bluntly saying that not all faith saves you. Just like he's bluntly saying, you can actually encounter trials and be joyful. I think James is hitting us in the face with a reality that's God's reality. And it, and it hurts a little because it's like, that's not the way I thought that this worked. So good question.
1: Got a lot of big theology questions. We're not going to answer all of them tonight. So I'm going to just try to summarize some of them. Jesus says uh, several times, all you have to do to be saved is to believe in me. Mm -hmm. So are we saying that that's not the whole story, it's only part of the story? And if works become a part of salvation on any level, doesn't that create a slippery slope? Am I doing enough? And then can I lose my salvation?
0: Yes, starting at the back end of that. Absolutely. That's just what I got through telling about if you want to harmonize what James is saying the way you want to understand is I have to have faith and I have to have works major theological problems, but I'm going to argue major practical problems. Welcome to the grace and effort thing. Welcome to the two kids guilt and rationalization bickering in the back seat. Yeah, it doesn't work practically. It definitely doesn't work theologically. In other words, it's going to be hard to just say I got two different things here. Back up to Jesus. Two issues here. One, yes, that is not the whole story because that's not all Jesus had to say. You know, believe and you'll be saved. That's true. It's also the same Jesus who said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Five times in two chapters in the Gospel of John. I mean, he, he means that. How do I take that? I don't think Jesus is schizophrenic. I think he's telling you. He just isn't going to one sentence tell you the whole story. I actually am going to argue in just a second that that is all you need to know but you cannot think of it in a dualistic way. But Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. What's the great commission? Go into all the world and tell them the gospel? Actually, no. Go make disciples of all the nations. Make followers, learners, teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. So when you step back and you look at the picture If you want to compartmentalize belief as a mental state, as faith, as something that I have cognitively or emotionally, then we are going to have both theological and practical problems. So yes, the answer to that is not that James or Paul or Jesus don't know what each other's talking about or that Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about from one chapter to the next. The answer to that is, and this is the key, this is what I'm trying to say the whole time is, This is a transformation of how we think about reality. We want to compartmentalize faith and works. And that will never work, either theologically or practically. Good point.
1: Um, Lots of people teach that if you follow biblical principles, your life will be better, your witness will be better. How does that fit in here?
0: Yeah, let's talk about that. You do hear a lot of teaching that if you follow biblical principles, your life will be better. Well, let's reason together. Does that match your experience? I I would argue probably not. Does it match what you read in the Bible? If the Apostle Paul zapped onto this stage right now, what do you think he would say about that? He would say, I live pretty well by biblical principles. What kind of life did you have, Paul? Painful, Terry, very painful. Painful. And yet, what did he say? I've learned to be content in every circumstance. I consider everything else rubbish compared to the greatness of knowing Christ. Whoa, wait a minute, but you didn't have a very good life, Paul. I mean, people hated you. You got stoned. This happened to you. In other words, if you look at the characters in the Bible who are following Christ, do their lives always work out really well? No, they do not. I mean, that's just, that's just self-evident. They do not. So we need to be careful about teaching that if you follow biblical principles, your life will be better. That could be true. It, it will be true in the most profound sense. It will not be true in the sense that you're probably thinking. In other words, if I'm a committed Christian, will my job go better? Will I necessarily have a better marriage? Will all my kids turn out right? Will I never have any problems with my bills? Will I not have health problems? That doesn't make any sense at all, does it? Those two things don't really, they're kind of beside the point. So we need to be careful about teaching the gospel is come to Jesus, he'll make your life better. That is not the message of the gospel. It just isn't the message of the gospel at all. And you know what? If you think it is, you're gonna have a really unhappy Christian life because your belief no longer matches reality that makes sense? But that's not, that shouldn't be a shock to anybody. That's kind of self-evidently the case. Jesus never promised you and said, by the way, if you follow me, pretty much everything in your life's going to work out well for you. You saw last week the thing of, oh, by the way, he says, in this life, you're going to have a lot of trouble, but I want you to take heart, be courageous because I've overcome this world in the way that, in, in the only ways that really matter. So we need to be very careful about teaching that. It takes the good news of Jesus Christ and turns him into a Gandhi, a Buddha, a self-help guru, and it just dilutes it. No, that's actually not a part of the good news of Jesus Christ.
1: Can you explain the phenomenon of being born again and experiencing a change in behavior relative to the description of grace and effort?
0: Yeah, let's talk about that. That segues nicely into what I want to talk to you about, about how then do we understand what James is saying in some holistic way? Because that's a great reference back to John chapter 3, remember when Nicodemus comes to Jesus and Jesus says, what does Jesus say to him? You need to act differently? No. You just need to have faith? No. He says it in a brilliant way. He says, the best way I can explain this to you is you need to be reborn. You need to become, this is how Paul's going to say it in Romans, same thing. You need to become a brand new person. In Romans, Paul says, we're going to be new creatures. Our old self died, was crucified with Christ. We've been raised, reborn, two different ways of saying the same thing, to walk in newness of life. That's a radical transformation. He's not saying, I need you to act better. Or I just need you to believe more. He's saying, I actually need to scrap the old you and I'm going to make you a brand new person. That's a very good point. What you see Paul say in Romans, what you see Jesus say in John chapter 3, and what you see James saying here, all the same thing. It's not a matter of, well, what do I believe or what do I do? It's going to be, I want you to become something different. Christianity is fundamentally not about changing uh, just what you think. It will. It's not just about changing what you do. Oh, it will. It is actually about changing who you are. And that's what leads to the, the whole idea of reality. James says, if you think that having faith is enough, what I believe will make me right, or works, what I do will make me good, you're going to have tension the whole time. We need to be reborn. And here's how he says it. Let's go on and look at, it uh, goes down a little further in James 2. He's talking about Abraham and he's using him as an example because Abraham was the great man of faith to them. He's like, he is the gold standard, right? He's going to say, listen, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Same word. Abraham had faith. I mean, it's just one word for this. Abraham had faith and it was credited to him as righteousness. They're going to say, so, so what's up with that? He says, well, stop and think about it. That was said after he was willing to sacrifice Isaac on the altar. And James sums it up like this. He said, so here's what I want to tell you. You see that his faith and his actions, now he's talking in this dualistic sense, and he says, you you can't reconcile that, but what did this story tell you? His faith and his actions worked together, and his faith is completed or perfected by what he did. You see what he's saying there? He said, what's the right answer? Was it his faith or was it his works? And James says, neither. It's faith and works working together are what actually make faith. Faith is working belief. In other words, the idea is that trust is working faith. It's just working itself out. So faith working through love is how Paul says it in Galatians 5, 6. He says, faith working itself out through love. In other words, James says you can't take those two and split them like that. That's why we have tension, is we actually think that what you believe and what you do are two different things. James says, that will never get you anywhere. He says, that kind of faith will not save you. Those kinds of works won't save you either, by the way. He just doesn't make that point. Those kind of works, that kind of faith won't save you. It's only faith working faith working through love. It's only faith being made complete by what I do. These two things work together. This idea of trust is really important. I'll give you an example. Uh, we used to do this in all of our executive team-building things. I think I've used this example before, but you guys have probably done it. Uh, if you've ever done what's called a trust fall, when you do team building, that's where you fall backwards and they catch you and you learn to trust your coworkers and we all leave singing Kumbaya, you know, and we're a team and we'll produce more and make more money. It's actually a great thing to do. Some people even do it from a platform. Oh, no way. Am I getting up on a platform and fall down where I could literally kill myself? Not happening. We didn't do it that way. We did it, you know, on, just on a floor and you'd have uh, usually four, sometimes six, you know, people behind you and you were supposed to fall back. I remember this one guy. Actually, this happened quite a bit. It really does. And, and what we would do is, we were told, don't put your hands up really high so they can feel your hand like here. That didn't take any trust. You know, if I, until I get to the point of commitment where I can't stop, I don't I don't have any trust. So don't put your hands up high, put your hands down low so that you've got to be past the point of no return to get back. There are people who cannot go past that point of no return. You just... You don't feel the hands. So you put the foot back. We had one guy never could do it. I don't know. Maybe they fired him or something. I never saw him again, but he never could actually go past the point of no return, you know, without doing it. Another guy, we had another guy in our group. This guy trusted. He just walked. I mean, even I, and I think I'm a pretty trusting guy. I just kind of think about it and look at him like, did I do anything that, to you lately? No, I think we're good. This. He just walks up and boom, just goes. The problem with that was we weren't ready, okay? And that's not our fault. He really did hit the floor. But he trusted. I mean, he was the most trusting guy I've ever seen. I mean, he didn't hesitate at all. So here's my question. Okay, so his head hurt. But my point is, who had trust there, right? That's pretty obvious, isn't it? Did you say, the first guy says, when we asked him, you know, oh, they would also do this, which I always thought was stupid, but the trainer would say, do you trust your co-workers? What kind of answer do you give that? Well, yeah, I trust my co-workers. Which one trusted his co-workers? Poorly, I admit, in the second guy's case, I mean, in a flawed way. The second guy trusted, the first guy didn't. It doesn't make any difference what he said. He didn't. And that's kind of this idea of James. He's going to say that you can't even talk about what you believe without what you do. And you can't talk about what you do without what you believe. You can just say, look, I did something bad, but that's not really me. Husbands, ever done that? I'm getting too personal here. You know, it's like, have you ever had one of those things where I said, that hurt my feelings? You go, well, I know I did that, but it doesn't reflect my feelings at all. Yeah, I know, women are too smart for that. to go, yeah, right. Are you used to just, are you normally just randomly act without thoughts behind it? Yeah, the truth is, at least in some sense, our actions are a reflection of what we, what we do believe. Not in a brutal sense, but it is. And that's what James is saying. So the idea of trust being working faith, I just, we need to change the way we think and stop thinking about it in a dualistic way. And so I've got some exercises, and I want to talk to you about how to do this practically, okay? The, the solution to this is what it's always is. I want you to think about reality differently. James is making a statement about reality. He's saying thinking about it as faith and works doesn't work, and it's not real. That's not saving faith. That won't save you. And he's right, it won't. You will not lead a life of contentment as long as you think of those as two different things because you cannot integrate them well enough into your life to not have that tension to not have guilt or rationalization or the ups and downs of life. James says, you wanna smooth this whole thing out? I want you to think differently. I want you to accept this reality. And that is that when Jesus said, you believe in me, you trust me, I like the word trust better, uh, just in general, I prefer to translate it trust. If you trust me, you'll be saved. That's better because you understand trust, kinda like, well, no, you can't say you trust and not do right? And you can't do without actually trusting. We understand that being more holistic, don't we? That's what James is saying. So here's what we're going to do. I want you to keep doing the tag. Let's just keep that going. I mean, my guarantee was after five weeks, you are going to see the world differently and your life is going to smooth out. That's not Terry guaranteeing you that. That's what James said. He said, do this. You hearers only or you doers? Let's keep doing this. Talk to God when you're stressed, ask him to do what's best and give thanks for one thing and then move on. Give thanks for something. The second thing is read your Bible every day. You don't have to read a lot of your Bible every day. Just read your Bible every day. Just immerse yourself in it. It is really hard to trust when you don't know. Your trust level goes up the better you know. If you wanna know what God's all about and what he thinks is going on, then read what he said. You can read the book of Proverbs, read a chapter of Proverbs every day. It will take you, I've timed it, 30 seconds. You could fit that in, right? Can I give you a guilt trip like Jesus died on a cross so you should at least read a a chapter of Proverbs? But my point is, is it doesn't take a lot. Pick Gospel of John, great place to start. Just read one chapter every morning. It'll take you, literally, this will take you less than two minutes to do, even if you move your lips when you read like I do. Okay, it's still really short. You will find... And then, by the way, don't walk away and go, Well, I didn't get anything brilliant out of that today. That's true. That's good. That's not the point. It's cumulative. Soak yourself in the Word. Read your Bible every day. So far, I'm not asking you to do anything, it takes much time. And here's the third thing here's how I want you to put your faith into action. Instead of when you get into a situation, just train yourself to say, Ask yourself this question what builds up in this situation? I don't usually, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing, it just doesn't work for me to say, gosh, what would the love of Christ do? Or WWJD, what would Jesus do? Those don't work for me, because love usually means sentimentality to you, to Americans, to all of us. That's not love in the Bible. What would Jesus do? Gee, I don't know. He ends up acting a lot like Terry after a while, and that's not good. What I usually do that I think is very constructive in any given situation, I usually ask this, What builds up? When you're talking to your kids, when you talk to your wife, what builds them up? Well, sometimes it's discipline. Sometimes it's uh, helping them. Sometimes it's not helping them. Ask yourself that question and kick your brain in. What builds up in this situation? That will quickly become your faith being in action. Does that make sense? If you want to know, well, do I have faith or do I have works? I'll tell you what, in any given situation, just do what builds people up. That will fulfill the law of Christ, trust me. It will work out quite well. And it bypasses some of those old familiar things. You're going to find out that your faith works itself out in any given situation if you will do what builds people up. That's your formula for this. Think about that a little bit because we need to train this way of thinking into action. We've got to unprogram the idea that faith and works are two different things. And we're going to do that by quit thinking about faith and works. In any given situation, just go ask, what, what builds up here? What makes us better? What edifies people? What's needed here that I'm able to do? You, trust me, you do that, and quit thinking about faith and works, and you will begin to have a very holistic faith, the kind that James is talking about. Question?
1: Don't forget, next week.
0: Next, yes, we announced that before you got here can't believe I actually said that. That, I was thinking it, but it just sort of slipped out. So we won't meet next week. But, uh, you know, obviously I'm pretty passionate about this, but this is very practical. This isn't philosophical. Pay attention. As long as you think of faith and work separately, as long as you look at trials through the lens of I need to control outcomes... Just don't blame me if you have a really up-and-down Christian life. It will be just like everybody else you know. It's just going to be up and down, and don't blame Jesus for that. We really need to think differently about these things. That's what James wants us to do. He says, listen, I'm going to tell you what reality is. If you believe that, then just go align your actions up with that thinking. And so it's talk to God, ask him to do what's best. I don't need it to work out my way. And by the way, thank you for whatever you do and thank you for what you have done, you will feel lifted up. The Spirit of God will begin to really use that. Read your Bible every day. Pick wherever you want to read. Don't start in Leviticus. Read your Bible somewhere else every day. Just a little bit. It's a little bit over time will begin to really make you will be a different person. It will transform you. It's the power of God, not my power, not any other speaker's power. It's really the power of the Spirit of God that will transform you. And then finally, in any given situation, quit worrying about, am I acting good enough? Is my faith strong enough? Um, you know, do I pray for the right things? Just go do what you think builds up in any situation. And you'll find yourself, as you read your Bible, as you talk to God, you'll find that the Spirit of God begins to put your faith into action automatically. And you'll stop thinking about it as two different things, okay? That's your assignment for two weeks you get two weeks to work on that and then we're going to tackle one of the most difficult problems clearly one that I need help with is we are going to change a lot of things in your life by taming our tongues okay so you have two weeks to just lash out but after
1: that we are going to tame this tongue I'll see you in two weeks thanks